It's always, it's always fun to be here. I've been uh, in this church uh, several times, preached here once or twice, and um, uh, in, in this season, uh, it's a special honor just to be able to come and, uh, and share in the, the life of your church and, uh, and to be again with uh, Pastor Evan, Stephanie, and your family too as, uh, as you navigate um, loss and as your church um, is such a supportive community. Um, I just uh, want to say that, you know, Cheryl and I were, were here a couple weeks ago. Was it almost been a couple weeks now, hasn't it, um, since Elia's death? And, um, you know, we, we were able to, uh, to attend with so many the, the memorial service, the celebration of Elia's life. And um, I told a couple of my colleagues, and I think I told you, Evan, that, um, you know, I've been in a lot of worship gatherings in my life. And I can count on one hand the, uh, the services, the celebrations that had the impact of Elia's celebration of life. And I'm not exactly sure what it was except the clarity of God's goodness and the gospel and the power of the resurrection. And so I, I just want to thank your family for being able to allow us to be part of that both grief but also the hope that we have in, in Jesus. So... Anyway, that's my sermon. I'm going home. So, no, it really is an honor to be here today. Um, this is a fun congregation to be part of. I know, I know a number of you, um, some of you by name now, but some of you I know the faces and I don't know the names, so um, I apologize if I, if I ask you what your name is again. Um, we're living in interesting times, and... You all know that, right? Um, <laughs> this is just a weird season to be part of the Church of Jesus in America. And um, it reminds me of how hungry people are for hope, how um, difficult it is sometimes to find that path to hope in our current cultural situation. And I find myself, maybe like you, praying for the Holy Spirit to move with fresh wind among us to remind us that God has indeed created a beautiful and good world and that he calls us back into what it means to be his children in this beautiful and good but broken world. Um, now, I grew up in church. I grew up in the Covenant Church. My dad was actually a Covenant pastor, and I grew up in a parsonage in Minnesota and Wisconsin, and, um, and so church has always been my second home. And a few years ago, maybe it's been my first home, actually, you know, it's been that central to who, um, who I've been in my life. And a few, few, few years ago, I started asking a weird question. I said, I wonder how many worship services I've been to in my life. And I, I'm not a completely obsessive, compulsive person, but I started thinking through the years, and, uh, and I s s sort of wanted a number attached to how many worship gatherings I've been at. Um, 
As a kid, I was in church a lot, like perhaps a few of you, you know, Sunday mornings, Sunday evenings, Wednesday evenings, the occasional Saturday things or the special meetings. And then I attended a Bible college and a university and a seminary, all with worship built into their weekly schedules. And um, as adults, uh, Cheryl and I uh, have structured our lives around the rhythms of the church, uh, which means regular worship. And so I, I estimated, did all the math and did some estimations, and I figured that I have been at more than 7,000 worship gatherings in my life. So that's the number, and I'm sticking with it. I think it's a pretty accurate, pretty conservative number, if anything. So you would think that after attending at least 7,000 worship gatherings, that a person that I would have this worship thing figured out, right? You'd think so. I mean, I've changed oil in my cars way less than 7,000 times, and I could do it in my sleep with my eyes closed. It's just second nature, easy to do. Mowing my lawn. You know, I've mowed my yard for decades. And uh, again, could do it in my sleep with my eyes closed. I got it figured out but I don't always feel like I'm very good at worship. I don't know if any of you feel that way as well. Um, I sometimes feel like others are experiencing something in a worship gathering that I'm missing. And I'm not exactly sure what's going on with that. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever experienced that. I, I, I was visiting a church a couple of years back and there was a guest speaker speaking and and she was a very, very nice, winsome speaker. For about 30 minutes, she stood at the pulpit and, and spoke with a very intense tone and may even have been pointing her fingers at the small crowd. And there was this huge outswell of amens. And I was simply just getting a headache. And I was thinking, I'm missing something here. This doesn't feel like I'm having the right response. Um, people were raising their hands in affirmation and, and were clearly experiencing something that I was not. And this happens to me um, occasionally in other ways too. Like, like I love music. And thank you, Bell Choir, for that. Um, that was beautiful. Uh, powerful. Um, I love music. I, I don't play guitar or piano, I wish I did, uh, but I do love music and occasionally God's presence floods over me as we are singing songs of worship or as I'm listening to something and it just sneaks up on me. Um, but I've noticed that for some people, um, they seem much more connected to God when we're singing than I sometimes am. And, um, you know, Sometimes I feel like a rigid telephone pole in worship, um, where others are much more expressive. Uh, I don't know if any of you feel like that. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I see that hand. And, um, and that sometimes is my experience in a worship gathering. Like I feel, oh man, I wish I could feel what some others seem to be experiencing. Um, but we all have different personalities. 
And some of us are more expressive, some of us are more reserved. I certainly would probably be on the more reserved end of the spectrum. And I'm okay with that because here's the reality that we find from God's Word. That worship really isn't about us performing for God, is it? Worship, you know, is not a performance. God loves those who exalt Him with external joy and expressive demeanor, and He loves even those of us who stand like telephone poles and who exalt Him with internal reverence. (laughs) Yes. And God also reminds us that worship isn't really about creating a feel-good experience. And that's been a concern of mine, I think, for the church for much of my lifetime, is that sometimes we can worship the worship experience rather than the object of worship that um, we gather to surround. Um, You know, we can go to a U2 concert or Carrie Underwood concert, whoever your favorite artist is, for that entertainment experience, for that feel-good experience. Or we can go to you know, a comedy club, or we can go somewhere if we want to be entertained. But that's not really the primary purpose of worship, right? Worship is exalting and declaring our allegiance to the Lord who is above all gods. Worship is participating in a reality that is beyond our immediate senses. That's what was so powerful about gathering to celebrate Elias' life. We were participating in a reality that was beyond our immediate senses. You know, on Pentecost so long ago, and the book of Acts records that first day of Pentecost in chapter 2, the apostle Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke to the crowd, and in Acts 2, Peter makes this bold declaration that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. And that was a provocative statement, as, as you may know, in the Roman world. Lord would be you know, a transliteration of the formal name of Israel's God, Yahweh. And Christ, or Messiah, has all of these political overtones. So if Jesus was both Lord and Christ, if he was both the divine one and the anointed one, then Caesar was clearly not. And no wonder Caesar got nervous and began to persecute Christ followers. And one of the ways that Caesar persecuted some of those early believers, Christian believers, was he sent them to a prison camp um, on the island of Patmos. And the Apostle John was one of those, as he confessed Jesus as king. And it was on the island of Patmos that, that the Lord gives John this vision that is recorded for us as the book of Revelation. And in chapter 4, where we want to focus for a few minutes this morning, John is shown the throne room of heaven. And this is the realm of God. This is like getting a picture of worship from God's point of view. And it's in this throne room that John shares some images that I think are foundational to worship. Um, And the first image that we find in chapter 4 is found in verse 2. And let me just Let me just read beginning at verse 1. It says that after this, I looked and there before me was a, a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And then we come to verse 2. And John writes, at once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. 
Now, you've heard this text before, I'm quite sure. Um, But the first image that we see in this verse is this throne. It isn't Caesar's throne. It isn't Elizabeth's throne. By the way, any of you watched The Crown? We're watching it the second time since her death, and uh, um, very interesting. I don't get the whole British throne, even though my wife's Canadian and a little closer to Britain. I don't get it. But anyway, I digress. The throne that we see in in Revelation 4, verse 2, isn't the seat of power in Washington, D.C. This is the throne room of ultimate power and authority over all of creation. And standing at the center of this throne is the Lamb, uh, we read in in chapter 5, verse 6. The Lamb is another name for Jesus who had been killed, but now is alive forevermore. And God has exalted Jesus to the highest place As Philippians tells us, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So the first thing that worship does is recenter our lives around the true king. Um, The late Eugene Peterson notes that people who do not worship are swept into a vast restlessness. And I I think we just see that in, in the world so often, and maybe even in our own lives, right? We get swept into this vast restlessness because we don't have a center of worship for ourselves. Um, The question is not if we will worship, but what or who we will worship. And uh, we see this played out um, even in in, back in the book of Exodus. Remember, you know, we're going to worship something. We're, We're going to find something to center our lives around because we don't like this vast restlessness that comes otherwise. And so, yeah, back in in Exodus. You know, God had led the Israelites out of Egypt through the wilderness to the base of Mount Sinai. Moses goes up on the mountain to meet with God and the people are down there waiting for him to come come back and and to to instruct the community on what's next. And as they're waiting for Moses, they get restless and they think, we got to do something. We need something to create a center for our lives. And so they pull off their rings and necklaces and whatever else jewelry they had, throw it into the fire and out came this golden calf, right? They found a way to create something to worship. It wasn't a good thing to worship, but it's an acknowledgement that we are going to worship something. We're going to center our lives around something. The problem is that we're often tempted to center our lives around the wrong kinds of thrones and you know, there are, there are lots of thrones in our culture. There's, you know, you name it, right? Money and success or, or sex is a big throne in our culture. Nationalism is a throne in our culture that has captured people for, for centuries. But our hope, hope will never be found ultimately in, uh, in achievement, in things, in sensuality, in a flag or in a particular ethnic group. There's got to be a larger throne that is worthy of our worship. And that is the throne of Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords who created us in His image, who died to restore our relationship with Himself, and who died to destroy death forever. This is the only King that can bring wholeness to our world right now. And I believe we all would acknowledge that, right? 
Yeah. Worship recenters our lives around the true king who has authority over every power and principality in creation, who is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. So this is the first image that we see in John, uh, that John gives us in Revelation chapter 4. There's a second image, though, in the next verse. Uh, look at, let's look at Revelation 4, verse 3. And it says, The one who sat there on the throne had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I, I don't use that kind of language in everyday conversation. This is something we have to pay a little bit closer attention to. Um, what is John describing here? The one seated on the throne shines with the brilliance and clarity of precious stones. And later in verse, chap- in verse 6 of this chapter, we read that in front of this throne there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Just let that imagery kind of soak into your mind. You know, uh, precious stones are, are, are so beautiful because they collect and they intensify light. Um, now, I, I love to look at the purity of light, uh, the color like in a sapphire or in a ruby, um, the brilliance of a diamond. I used to have a, a, a class ring that I got during high school, and uh, I think it's in a drawer somewhere. But it had a blue stone in it. I don't know if it was my birthstone color or something. It wasn't even that precious of a stone. But I used to sit in church on Sunday night, and we had these spotlights that came off the ceiling. And I would sit there, rather than listening to whoever was speaking, and I would, and I would catch the light reflecting through that blue stone. I thought, this is so beautiful. You know, it was uh, like, I'm not that kind of a person, but it was beautiful. And, um, and there's something about the clarity of light, the purity of light that speaks deeply to my soul and maybe to your soul. Worship is like that. Um, worship, according to John, tells us that, that God is a pure, uh, beautiful light that has something to say to who we are deep within us. God is light in him. There is no darkness at all, right? Worship reveals the beauty and truth of God's light. That's what worship does. It reminds us that we are created for the brilliant beauty of his kingdom. Now, we all live in the Midwest. I don't know if you grew up in the Midwest. Um, I grew up in, in Minnesota, Wisconsin. Um, but have lived in the Midwest most of my life. And, you know, there's a lot of things I like about the Midwest. There's one thing that I don't love about the Midwest, especially in the summertime. And that is when, like where we live down near Wichita, Kansas, we'll get this gulf air that starts blowing up and it's, it can carry a lot of humidity with it. Like, it's not as humid as Minnesota, but it's hotter, so it's just as bad. And, um, and so in July, what sometimes happens is it'll be 95 degrees and you go outside and you look and the sky isn't blue. It's sort of this milky white from all the dust and moisture that's blowing up from Oklahoma and the Gulf of Mexico. Um, not the prettiest time of year in my book. 
And then we get to October, right? And all of a sudden you get these nice, cool northern breezes, except for this year when we're going to be close to 90 degrees today. But what, what it does is it just blows out all of that stuff in the air that taints the beauty of that cobalt blue sky. And suddenly in the fall you get this gorgeous, these gorgeous days where the sky is perfectly blue and the clouds in contrast are perfectly white. And you think, okay, this is how God reminds us of the purity of who he is. I just, I just think that um, for me, we, we, we long to live in a world of vivid beauty. That's one of the core desires of our lives, where truth and justice and love shine brightly. Because it's hard to live year after year after year in a world of grays, a world where beauty has been muted because of violence and brokenness, you know, a world where leaders manipulate people by twisting the truth. You know, our lives and lives can get uglier and uglier because we are driven by fear and division and self-interest, and we grow tired of that world. And there's a lot of fatigue of that world right now. Worship reminds us that a new day is coming. Worship reminds us that we were not created for a washed-out world of oatmeal gray. Worship reminds us and reveals that God created us to enjoy the beauty and truth of his light. So when we look to the one who sits on the throne, our minds and our souls are reawakened and the vivid colors of, of jasper and ruby, this rainbow resembling an emerald, this sea that resembles crystal, remind us that we belong to a renewed creation that awaits the people of God. That's our hope. And the world around us, our neighbors, our family members need desperately to know that hope. It's the only thing that really makes life um, filled with hope. A place where justice, truth, and beauty, wholeness will be normal. Um, God is renewing all things, and you and I reflect as His people the vivid beauty of God's light as we shine like stars in the universe as we hold out the word of life. I love that image. Okay, one more thing that, that we see in these verses and then we'll wrap up. Chapter 4, verse 4, it says that surrounding the throne, this is the third image, were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their head. Now these 24 other thrones are interesting because they represent the whole people of God. They represent us. The 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of, Jew, uh, of, of Jesus, the entire people of God are represented in these 24 thrones. The elders on the 24 thrones are dressed in white. They have been made new through the blood of Jesus. They are wearing crowns. They have authority to reign with Christ. Now, what I want to point out here is that these 24 elders on the, these 24 thrones are not like hyper-holy saints. It's easy to, to, to read this and think, oh yeah, you know, they are the renowned. I want to suggest that these are us as well. 
that these are the imperfect people of Jesus who have been rescued and restored through the cross, through the resurrection. Remember Peter? Let's just remind ourselves of who these people are. The Apostle Peter, right? We all know him. We read about him in the Gospels. Peter had issues. You know some of them, right? He um, definitely had a problem with impulse control. Remember the night that Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and Peter was there and suddenly pulls out his weapon and cuts off the ear of one of the guards? Jesus, like, you know, restores the ear to the guard and, and says, no, Peter, this isn't what we're about. Um, and then Peter goes on and denies Jesus three times. Peter's on one of those thrones. The restored, forgiven, healed disciple. And then what about John? The Apostle John. He's another of the 24. Do you remember that one of the Gospel writers um, repeatedly describes John as the disciple whom Jesus loved? Remember that? It always refers to John as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Do you remember which disciple wrote about John being the disciple whom Jesus loved? It's John. It's like, you know, John, John was, uh, he maybe had a little bit of an overinflated ego. I mean, he, he wasn't this super holy saint that wasn't human. He was like us. True worship of God reconciles imperfect people, both to God and to each other. And verse, descri- uh, verse 6 um, in, in this chapter describes uh, this sea of glass before the throne, and it really signifies the water of baptism, dying to self and being raised to new life in Jesus. Now, I want to just you know, leave you with these three verses today and acknowledge that we do really live in challenging times. Uh, it is easy to be angry at each other today, and it's easy to be without hope um, in the world today. It's easy to look for, for quick fixes to the brokenness around us. And, and always looking for quick fixes usually leads us um, into more trouble. But right after Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples asked him, Lord, are you going to at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Remember that? Jesus was raised. The disciples were excited. They thought this was the moment Jesus was going to bring it all to the culmination. And Jesus responds in Acts 1 verse 6. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses. There can be no change in this world without this power from God. Um, we have received that power. And the word is, is the word dunamis um, in Acts 1 verse 6. And some Bible teachers like to point out that this word dunamis is the word from which we get our word dynamite, right? Um, but that is a little bit misleading. I used to preach on this and make that correlation. And then it then you start realizing, okay, there's a little bit of a difference between dynamite as we think of it and the power of the Holy Spirit as reflected in Acts 2. 
Dynamite is powerful, the Holy Spirit is powerful, but the difference is that dynamite blows things up. The Holy Spirit builds things up. There's a difference. Dynamite tears things apart, the Holy Spirit brings things together. That's the power that God has poured into us. So if you are like me, and if you don't always feel that you're good at worship, um, remember that worship is not about performing for God. And worship is not about creating just a feel-good experience. Instead, remember these three verses from Revelation 4. Remember these images, the throne, the precious stones, the 24 thrones. Worship recenters our lives around the true king. And worship reveals the beauty and truth of God's light, something that we deeply long for. And worship reconciles imperfect people and draws us into God's family together. I'm grateful for this congregation and for the life we have together. Thank you for your partnership in being light in our world today. It's not easy, um, but it is so powerfully impactful. And let me just say this. It's, it's at times of crisis when the beauty of Christ shines most brightly. When eternity comes into focus most clearly. Your church is in that season now. And it's beautiful to see a powerful witness for the world around us. A people whose hope is secure in God's inheritance and who are living that reality until he comes again. Lord Jesus, would you inspire us and fill us with your spirit that we might rest in, in your work that has been completed for us. Lord, may these images instruct us as we worship and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.